So this morning, I want to minister for a little while through a message that I'm calling Ransomed by His Son's Blood. As powerful as that truth is, that truth will do very little to change a person's life if after we come to Christ, we marginalize Jesus and His finished work. You say marginalize, what do you mean? To marginalize means to demote something. It means to downgrade. It means to relegate something. In other words, that which should be front and center, that which should be the centerpiece of everything you look at, what happens is we so often have this tendency to make it peripheral. I want you to think about this for a moment. Imagine someone that you really love, could be a husband, a wife, a son, a daughter, a best friend. And imagine that person from this point forward has to live in your peripheral vision. That means every time you turn, they move. You can never catch up with them. Now, even though they're in your presence and you can hear them talking and perhaps breathing and you can touch them, Would you agree with me that it just wouldn't be the same if you couldn't look them in the face? I mean, that would be like me buying my wife a dozen roses and going, honey, (laughs) I've just got just one rule here. You can't look at them. You can smell them, but you've got to close your eyes. You can feel them if you want to, but you can't look at them. Listen, the beauty of flowers is to behold them. And the beauty of a relationship with Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, is to behold Him. Don't make Him peripheral. Make Him centerpiece of everything in your life. That's what happens to a number of believers after the honeymoon has run its course. The church will put them to work and they will teach them a mixture message a doctrine or a message that mixes law with grace. There's no point in that when you come to Christ. Man, I almost did this too. I I almost did this. I thought about it for years. I was going to write the Ten Commandments above my door, down the door post. Listen, I'm all about being good. I'm all about honor. I could go through those commandments. Nobody wants to talk about those things right now. Listen, the Ten Commandments never set anybody free. Christ is the one who sets you free. But I almost did that. I thought, man, that sounds right, man. Last thing I look at before I go out the door is those Ten Commandments. That would keep me straight and narrow today. No. Listen, if Christ can't do it, the Ten Commandments aren't going to do it. To marginalize something is to put it on the sideline. Today is the Super Bowl. Believe me, those players that sit on the sideline don't feel like the ones that are on the field. I don't want to keep Christ on the sideline. I want Him front and center in my life. I want to behold Him at all times. Triumphant Grace Ministries is a ministry that promotes Jesus. You see, that's the opposite of marginalize something. It's you promote it. You get them off the sidelines and you put it out there where the whole world can see it. That is what Triumphant Grace Ministries does. We promote Jesus and we promote 
his finished work, and we always will. That great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, here's what he said. He said, it is the preacher's principal business. I think I might say his only business to cry, behold, the Lamb of God. You know what? That is a good statement. I don't care how you polish it up or what you do to it. That's a good word. That's our principle. Maybe our only business is to say to people, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He has taken away your sin and my sin. In beholding, we get to look into the face of Christ. In beholding, we get to look into the heart of the Father. In beholding, we get to see the beauty of the Holy Spirit revealed in so many different ways. You see, at one time, we were captive to sin, but we were ransomed by His Son's blood. The Bible says we who at one time were far away have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. Sin made us ugly, but Jesus, his blood made us beautiful. <laughs> Did you hear me? I said sin made us ugly, but Jesus made us beautiful. I love it. How did he do that? That's a good question, isn't it? How did Jesus make us beautiful? Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. In other words, he's brought us out from the dominion, the kingdom of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In other words, he transported us from one kingdom into another. And where did he say he put us? He put us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's how he made us beautiful is because he took away our sins. We're not beautiful in his eyes with sin. So what did he have to do? He had to deal with them. He had to take them away. He had to take them out of the picture. We're brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus made us beautiful. What should our response to Jesus's ransom be? What should our response to the ransom he paid look like? Well, let me tell you a story real quick. A few years ago, a young man thought life was not worth living. And he put a gun in his mouth and pulled the trigger. And he lived. And he begged the paramedics on the way to the hospital, please don't let me die. He realized he had done the wrong thing. He got caught up in emotions. I'll tell you what, your emotions will lie to you at times. Put a gun in his mouth, pulled the trigger, and it messed him up. He had several surgeries, and then a few years later, they began to come up with something called facial transplants. I just find that amazing that they can even do something like that, that they can take your face and put it on Fred. And so another young man died, and he had told his wife before he died, if anything ever happens to me, he said, I want to donate all my organs so that other people would live. And he said, including my face. I want you to take a look at the picture of the before and after of this man. 
It's a horrible thing to look at. That picture on the left right there is after five surgeries. Can you imagine what he looked like before that? That man received someone else's face. It took a team of 56 physicians and, and others to do this transplant, which took two to three days, steady working. I find that amazing that you could go through that much transformation. When the young lady who lost her husband got to meet the recipient of her husband's face, do you think she wanted to keep him in the peripheral? No! She wanted to look him in the face. Why? Because she was able to look into a face that was familiar to her, a face that lived on in another man. She wanted to behold him. Why? Because her husband lived through him. What do you think that recipient's response was when he saw himself for the first time in a mirror after those surgical bandages were removed? I'll tell you what his response was. Forever grateful. Forever grateful. He was forever ransomed by another man. A man that would have sat in his home for fear of mockery or had to wear something over his face now could go out in public and have nobody even notice. How many of you know that another man had to die so that that disfigured man could receive a new identity. Oh, friends, that's what happened with us in Christ. Another man died so that we could receive a brand new identity. We don't look the same. We don't smell the same. In his eyes, we have a brand new identity. The Bible says we are new creations in Christ. Old things are passed away. That old disfigured look you had is passed away. He said all things are become new. There's no scars. We are beautiful in the Father's eyes. The Bible says that Jesus was so disfigured. The Bible says marred. He was so marred. It says he didn't even look like a human being. He looked worse than the man on the left. And who did he do that for? He did that for you, honey. He did that for you, brother. He did that for me. One man who thought enough to say, Daddy, if I die, I want to make sure I live on in somebody else. Oh, what a word! If we see His blood as merely our ticket to heaven, we have marginalized the gospel. I said, if you see your salvation as just a ticket to heaven, you have marginalized the gospel. The gospel is so much larger than that. You've marginalized the gospel. The truth that we have been ransomed by his son's blood is so much more than a ticket to heaven. It's our promotion to sonship. It is. It's our gift from the father that allows us to live life and see good days. And that is the life I'm living right now. I'm telling you, I live life every day and I see good days every day. I'm not saying I welcome everything that comes along, but I am living life and seeing good days. That is exactly what the Father had planned. He said, listen, I want to change the way you see yourself so that when you go out of the house, you're not hiding anything. So that when you go out of the house, you can be proud of what's happened. You can be proud of the transformation that's taken place inside of you. 
His ransom, his son, and his blood all testify of a perfect love from the heart of the Father. Now listen to me. When the truth that we have been ransomed by his son's blood, when that truth sets up in your heart like a king, when that truth becomes paramount in your mind, when that truth becomes our reality, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. That truth is going to serve an eviction notice on the perpetrator we call fear. Let me get more graphic with you, okay? That perfect love, when that revelation hits your heart, you know what it does? It reaches over and grabs fear, not by the hand, but by the foot. And it drags it out of its place inside of you and it straps it to a gurney and gives it a lethal injection. Oh, you say, Mark, man, that was graphic. Oh, man, that was graphic. No, I tell you what, you haven't seen graphic yet until you see what fear does to a person's life, how it destroys marriages, how it destroys human beings, how it destroys people. That is graphic. I had a guy one time when we were really into health, we were teaching health classes about eating better, drinking better, drinking juices, eating better and stuff like that. He said, man, he said, what you do is extreme. I said, stop. I said, I'll tell you what's extreme. What's extreme is when they take a scalpel and they put it at this navel and cut you to that navel. I said, that's graphic. And then they take a bone saw and saw through your chest and they spread your chest wide open and they stop your heart, work on your heart. That is graphic. He said, well, I guess that ain't so graphic with you anymore, is it? Friends, what Jesus did on the cross was graphic. But when that truth becomes our reality, when we take possession of that truth of his perfect love, quit marginalizing the gospel. The gospel is everything to me. Jesus is everything to me. He's not part of my Christianity. He's the sole purpose of my Christianity. He's the one that's out in front. When my face moves, he moves. He's always out in front. Only the revelation of the truth that we have been ransomed by the blood of perfect love can take away condemnation and fear. Only that revelation, I'm telling you, it is stubborn. It won't leave for any other reason, but that revelation will reach in and pull out condemnation and fear. Now, did you know that depression is the leading cause of disability in the world? In the family of depression, we find things like paranoia. We find things like schizophrenia. We find anxiety. We find even post-traumatic stress disorders. But we find more subtle things like migraines. And we find more subtle things like sleep disorders. Now listen to me carefully. Many, not all, most, not all of those issues, the mental issues of life, most of them have their roots in condemnation and then subsequently fear. See, what we're doing is we're mowing dandelions, hoping it will all go away, but dandelions just keep sprouting back up. It's not the way you do it. Listen, man, I've got a rock right there in the center of my hand. It got in there in 1973. It's been there ever since. You run your finger over it, you can feel it. Now, see, it didn't go away. It's just calloused over. But I'm telling you, that's what we do. We want things to callous over. We want things to just mow off and look pretty for a day or two. But I'm telling you, when we deal with the deepest root, which is condemnation and fear, you'll find such a peace working in your life. 
You'll find such a joy working in your life. You'll see yourself different than you've ever seen yourself before. You'll not be hardly able to not look into the mirror and go, man, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. I am his holiness. I am his beloved. I'm his bride. I'm beautiful in his eyes. He took away my sin, gave me his beauty. Amen. I have a friend who has a close friend. I don't know his friend, but we have the mutual friend. And his friend is currently living in an assisted mental facility. That man was raised in Catholicism. And even though he will tell his friend, yes, I prayed the, the prayer. I asked Christ to come into my life. Yes, I prayed that prayer. He often tells my friend, he cannot accept the message that he is forever forgiven. He said, in fact, there's times I don't feel forgiven at all. Here's a man that is constantly tormented by the what ifs. What if I'm not good enough? There was a series years ago, Left Behind. What if I'm left behind? Listen, Jesus' blood did it all or it didn't do anything. He took away all my what ifs. I don't look at me and go, what if I'm good enough? I know I am based on his blood. I've been ransomed by his son's blood. Ransomed by his son's blood. Now, whether this man's belief system took him to the cage of condemnation or that belief system keeps him there, I don't know. Maybe both. But the truth is, he has been fully and completely ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and he has been ransomed from the dominion of sin and from future punishment and doesn't know it. Why doesn't he know it? Because the man has marginalized the gospel. If you get the gospel over here and you can't see that it starts with him and finishes with him, then all you've got is your mountain to look at. All you've got is your issues of life to look at. You've got your problems to stare at. But when you bring Jesus back here, you bring the gospel, I've been saved by grace, back in front of you, and you keep beholding that, it changes you, and it flushes out all those old mentalities. He has marginalized the gospel. He has marginalized Jesus. He's marginalized the power of the blood. We used to sing that song. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. And he has marginalized the finished work of the cross. Through the message today, I want us to see what fear is, where it came from, how it impacts our lives, but most importantly, how to be free from this menacing Philistine. I hate fear, I'm being honest with you. I hate it. I do. I want us to grasp the reality that we're no longer slaves to fear. Amen. I tell you what, the next time fear tries to creep in, I want you to stop and mentally make a decision to say, what is it that I'm beholding? A man said one time, he said, you talk about the mountain, it grows. You talk to the mountain, it goes. So true. You look at something, I'm telling you, it gets on you. It's contagious almost. You ever been around somebody, that just their very laugh. They start making you laugh. Their smile. It's hard to look at a person who's smiling from ear to ear and even laughing and then not have a smile on your face. <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? Okay, I saw one or two of you out there. It's hard. 
what we behold, we become. You behold fear, you become fearful, full of fear. You behold Jesus, you become like him, full of confidence, full of power, full of boldness, full of grace, full of truth. So what is fear and what causes it? Listen, I don't want to give a lot of space to talk about the problem. I want to talk to the problem, okay? I don't like talking about the issues of life, so let's just sum it up in a couple of words. Fear is an unpleasant emotion. Nobody likes to be afraid. That's all it is. It's an unpleasant emotion. And what causes it? It's caused by a belief system that someone or something is dangerous and they're going to take things from you, rob you of certain things, take away your freedom, cause you pain, become a threat to you. That's what fear does to us. How can you live life and see good days living like that? You can't. You can't live life and see good days living like that. Your days are intermittent like that. Now, fear is something that we've all dealt with in life. And I believe there are healthy fears and I believe there are unhealthy fears. I believe if I happen to be in the woods and I encounter a big black bear who's looking at me and kind of charging me, hey, listen, I believe that's a healthy fear, don't you? I mean, what are you going to do in a situation like, what are you going to say to the bear, huh? Tell me, are you the only one here? Are you from the area? I mean, what are you going to say to the bear? No, I mean, it'd be healthy just to go, no, you, you want to run. But it's an unhealthy fear to say, man, I wonder if I'll be left behind. I wonder if he'll ever leave me. I wonder if he'll ever forsake me. That's an unhealthy fear. And it takes the power of his love and the power of his grace to flush that out and get rid of that. Healthy versus unhealthy. Amen. It's sad to say, but fear is the emotion often experienced when people think about God including believers. Now, if you say, really, Mark? I haven't talked to anybody like that. Oh, you haven't listened. I'm telling you, fear will be in their words. Listen to what they say. The evidence will be in the words. I don't care if they say it with a smile or how they say it. The evidence will be in the words. So when people think about God, whether you're an unbeliever or a believer, often the first emotion is fear such as that man in the assisted mental facility. They see God as harsh and heavy, strict and stern, dangerous, rather than safe. Are you kidding me? How could that be? That doesn't make sense. You know, we have eight grandchildren, two that are older teenagers, and then six younger ones, three from our son, three from our daughter. And I guarantee if you go over to my son's children and you say to them, what is it that God does for us? Every single one of those kids, if I was a bet man, I'd put my whole check on it. Every one of those kids would say, God forgives us of our sins. I say, that's exactly right. That's it. He does, doesn't he? He forgives us of our sins. And then you go over to our daughter's children and you ask her kids the same thing, same question. What does God do for us? I guarantee every single one of her children will say he keeps us safe. Friends, I just... Just took my grandchildren and painted a picture of the finished work. He saves us and he keeps us safe. 
Do you see that? He doesn't just save us and leave us on our own. That's child neglect. It is. It's child neglect. No, he saves us and he walks with us. He keeps us. He really does. In Psalm chapter 46, verses 1 through 3, we find these words. God is our safe place and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. Now hold up a second here now. Oh, there's so much wonderful stuff in these scriptures right here. Look what it says. It says, God is our safe place and our strength. Please do not marginalize that truth. I want you to keep that truth front and center at all times. Please do yourself a favor and memorize that one. Take it into your heart that no matter what the situation is, God is our safe place and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Keep that truth front and center. And then I like this next word. It's the adverb, therefore. When you look it up in the dictionary, it literally means for that reason. For that reason. That's what the definition of therefore is. When fear comes, we say God is our safe place. God is my strength. God is my ever-present help in trouble. When anxiety comes, God is our safe place. When depression comes, God is our safe place. In the midst of betrayal, we all get betrayed once in a while. In the midst of betrayal, I want your default mechanism to be, God is my safe place. God is my strength. God is my ever-present help in trouble. And for that reason, therefore, I will not be afraid. For that reason... When sickness knocks on your door, for that reason, what reason? God is my safe place. God is my strength. He is my ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, for that reason, I will not fear. And I love what he says here. He says, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake and the swelling thereof. Friends, we're talking about something cataclysmic. I mean, what in the world could knock the earth off its axis? He said, though the earth be removed and the mountains basically drug into the sea. In other words, vast flooding. He's talking about something cataclysmic and something very catastrophic. Now listen, he reached out there and he painted a bleak picture. He said, let me take this thing to an extreme. If all of this stuff was going on, he said, if the earth suddenly was removed and the mountains carried into the midst of the sea, and though the waters there roared and troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, he said, listen, when those twins catastrophic and cataclysmic knock, he said, I'm going to show them their way to the gurney because I'm not going to be afraid. I'm telling you, the body of Christ is afraid and we don't have to be afraid. And then I love this. He ends verse 3 with that word, Selah. Selah. Selah literally means, it's a musical term, but it means to pause and think about that. 
So what he's saying here, I just ran three scriptures behind you. Don't even go on to verse four. Let's stop and think about what I just said. Selah means to pause and think about that. And the Psalms uses that word Selah 71 times. 71 different times he says, listen, I just put a powerful truth in your heart. I want you to pause and I want you to think about that. Sometimes I go on pause for hours, sometimes days thinking about a truth that God has given me. That's what Selah means. Don't rush beyond that. Pause and think about what he's just said. God is my safe place and strength, a very present help in trouble. And when he says Selah, he's not saying, I want you to pause and think about the trouble, the catastrophes, the calamities. No, we think about his truths that he began with, that God is our safe place and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now, let me unpack this word Selah for you just a little bit, okay? The word Selah in the Hebrew is made up of three letters, Samek, Lamed, and He. Reading from right to left, you can see them right there. Samek, Lamed, and He. Now, if you're going to use that word 71 times, I want to see what else is behind that word. There are no random filler words with God. The first letter is Samek. Samek means to uphold or support. So in the Hebrew, the letter Samek means to uphold or support. Now, one of my favorite letters of the Hebrew alphabet is Lamed. There are so many wonderful things about this letter. If you were to take the Hebrew alphabet and line it all up in a row, just like A, B, C, D, E, F, G, just like that, Lamed is right in the middle. <laughs> right smack dab in the middle. And Lamed is the only letter that towers above the baseline. In other words, every Hebrew letter all come to the same exact height with the exception of Lamed. Lamed towers above all letters. You can see by looking at Lamed, it's the shape of a shepherd's staff. Who is this a picture of? Well, in case you want a little bit better picture of it, let me tell you what the ancients said about this letter Lamed. They said, because that letter towers above all the other letters, we're familiar with kings because we know what kings are. But the ancients would say, that letter represents the king of kings. Now, they had no way to know that Jesus would be called the king of kings. Jesus was not made known to them in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant. But they said, listen, that letter is special. There's something about that letter. We're going to call that Malek Hamalakim, which means, in Hebrew, the king of kings. And then, of course, the very next letter is He. One of my favorites, of course, He means grace. So Selah's letters literally speak to us like this. We are upheld by the King of Kings, grace. You don't do it. He does it. We are upheld by the King of Kings, grace. Samek, Lamed, He, Salah, Selah. Beautiful, isn't it? Fear starts in the brain. Anxiety is an emotional response 
to something that our brain thinks is dangerous, but in actuality, it is not dangerous. Now, here's what happened. Fear kicks our fight or flight response into four-wheel drive. It kicks it into overdrive, if you will. And what begins to happen is our adrenal glands begin to secrete adrenaline. And like an animal that is trying to avoid being eaten by another animal, all of our body's resources get diverted to one goal. And that one goal is staying alive. Did you know when you're under extreme fear that your digestive system stops working? Did you know that? Why is that? Because it requires so much energy to digest food, and that energy has to be rerouted to your muscles. That's why people are able to lift cars off people and outrun certain things, run faster than they ever run, because of this adrenaline and this cortisol that's dripping into their bodies. It's what happens under extreme anxiety, fear. Our heart rate and our blood pressure spike. Did you know that even the pupils on your eyes dilate when you're afraid? You know why? It's so that you can see things better. You ever look at an owl? Man, they got pupils like that, man. Those big old eyes looking at you. They're nocturnal. They got to be able to see in low light situations. And when we have this fight or flight mentality that kicks in, most of the time it's in the dark. It's in low light situations. We don't get as afraid in the light, do we? And I'm telling you, there's something there for that too, that we're children of light. We've been put in Christ, who's the light of the world. And we don't have to fear. We're no longer living in the dominion of darkness. We've been translated into the kingdom of his dear son. But if we persistently live in fear, then that means we are constantly secreting the hormones of adrenaline and cortisol. The hormones that are given to us to help us suddenly become our enemies. Do you ever feel like the running man? You're just always running. You're always running and fleeing from things. Then I have a word for you. God is your safe place. God is your strength. God is an ever-present help in time of trouble. Therefore, let the words rise in your heart. I will not fear. Natural fear, yes. Supernatural stuff, don't be afraid of devils, demons, imps, foul spirits, all that stuff like that. There is no reason to be afraid of that kind of garbage. I'm telling you, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. That's true. I don't know if you've ever went to this website online. I, I haven't been there in a long time, but I went there the other day. It's uh, called WebMD. It's an online publisher of news and information that pertains to human health. And I wanted to go there, and I wanted to look up adrenal fatigue. And when I punched that in there, this is the way it started. Do you feel tired and worn out all the time, even though you're getting plenty of sleep? That's the way it begins. See, that's how it sucks you in. You're like, yeah, that's me. Do you feel tired and worn out all the time, even though you're getting plenty of sleep? That's <laughs> where most people live today. And when I thought about that, I thought, man, Lord, that's exactly what Eugene Peterson did when he wrote the Message Bible in some of my favorite scriptures in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28, 29, and 30. He begins with that same verbiage. He says, are you tired? Are you worn out? 
burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. And then I love this. He says, I'll show you. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. That's probably why I like that passage so well. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. You see what it says there? It says, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Unforced means effortless. If you don't force something, it's effortless. It's effortless. And a rhythm is just a beat. That's all it is, a beat. And so when he says, learn the unforced rhythms of grace, he's literally saying, learn the effortless beat or the effortless heartbeat of grace. Grace has a heartbeat because grace is a person. It's Christ. Learn the effortless heartbeat of Christ. What is his message for us to rest and enjoy life and see good days? And then he says, I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live life freely and lightly. You see, when we become tired and worn out in our physical bodies because of the constant drip of adrenaline and cortisol, it messes us up. And likewise, we also become tired and worn out in our spiritual lives because of the constant drip of law and performance. Do and be, do and become. No, friends, I've already arrived. Jesus has made me perfect in his sight. His blood worked. I got good news for you. It worked the first time. There's so many things in life. I've repaired things and got done with it. Spent hours on it, got done with it. It wouldn't work. Like I had to go back and do it again. It wouldn't work. I'm telling you, his blood worked the first time. And it works every time. It's exhausting, man, trying to live up to becoming something. You'll get a lot more done just resting in him. That's why Jesus said there, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come away, get away with me. How do we recover? You say, Mark, that's where I'm at right now. I feel that way all the time. How do we recover out of that? He told you. He said, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Learn. Listen, if you're going to learn something, you've got to watch it. If you're going to learn something, you've got to listen to it. You can't learn a language, a foreign language without listening to it. Come on, folks, you've been over in Haiti for a few years. It doesn't just happen without listening to it, does it? No, you've got to listen to it. You've got to speak it. You've got to say what Jesus says. You can't have him say one thing and you say something totally opposite and expect it to work. There's power in agreement. So when you say what he says, there is power in that. There's power in that. Quit saying stuff that he doesn't say. Quit saying, ah, oh, man, I'll just never amount to anything. No. <laughs> Quit saying things like, I'm ugly, man. No, he's made you beautiful. Quit saying stuff like, I'm a failure. No, he's made you beautiful in his sight. What are the unforced rhythms of grace? I'll tell you what they are. God is our safe place and strength. That's an unforced rhythm of grace. He's a very present help in trouble. That's an unforced rhythm of grace. Why? Because he's doing it all. I'm just the receiver. Jesus and his finished work are no longer marginalized. He is the centerpiece and the object of our affection. We have been forever ransomed by this man who loves us. We are no longer in the cage of condemnation. We will not fear because 2,000 years ago, 
Perfect love was nailed to a tree, and then perfect love strapped fear to a gurney and gave it a lethal injection. I love it. Get that picture in your heart this morning. That's what perfect love does. The Bible says perfect love casts out all fear. Perfect love doesn't just come so you'll feel warm and fuzzy all the time. Perfect love has to deal with some stuff. It has to take out some things that we think about. So, where did this fear come from? Where's the first example of fear in the Bible? All right. Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Remember, they were commanded not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And this is the way man answered God. He said, I heard you in the garden. Look at these words. And I was afraid. Adam had never feared his father. He had never been afraid of his father. So what caused him to be afraid? He sinned against God. So you say, well, Mark should not be afraid when I sin. No. Why? Because Jesus took away our sin. I'm not saying we don't sin, but what I'm telling you is your sin has been thoroughly punished in the body of Jesus Christ. We do not have to be afraid. We run to, we don't run from. We don't hide behind some sort of bush. I heard you in the garden, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So God is asking that question, where are you, Adam? He's basically saying, Adam, let me modernize it. Is adrenaline secreting in your body? Because it's going to make you feel very tired. And it's going to make you feel very worn out. And he says, come to me, Adam. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest, son. Walk with me like we've always done every day in the cool of the day. Walk with me like that again, son. That's what daddy came down to do. Walk with his son again. He knew he had committed sin, but he came down to walk with him and have fellowship with him and love on him and work with me and watch how I do it. Adam, you need to learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Believe me when I tell you that even in the midst of catastrophic failure, I am. Hear those words, I am. Not I will be, not I was, I am your safe place. I am your strength. I am a very present help in time of trouble. I am your Selah, the one that upholds you by the King of Kings' grace. I am your source that causes you to live freely and lightly. I am your ransom and your great reward. Now what? (laughs) Adam, you blew it. Well, friends, I want to tell you something. If Adam would have been disposable, it would have happened just about that quick. See, because Adam was biodegradable. (laughs) He came right out of the dirt. Serious, he would have. He'd just been over with right there. But God didn't come down to do that to Adam. God came down to walk with him. 
Did he know he was going to fail before he put him in the garden? Yes, of course. God knows everything. Oh, my goodness. So what was it that God did for Adam and Eve? He made garments from the sacrifice of an animal. And listen to me carefully. This is a type and shadow of Jesus' death for us. That's all it is. You see, because in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, the Bible says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. God didn't take some heavenly clippers, run them across a lamb, run them through Eli Whitney's cotton gin, and poof, you got a sweater, there you go. No, see, he didn't just take the wool. The Bible says he made garments from coats of skin. When you skin an animal, you kill an animal because, I mean, you can't have an immune system without your skin. You can't live without your skin. God killed, no doubt it was a sheep. It was probably a lamb. And he made clothing for Adam and Eve. It was the type and shadow that several thousand years later, Jesus Christ would come and he would become our ultimate sacrifice on the cross. Even in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says this, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without Jesus' shed blood, there would be absolutely zero forgiveness. Without his shed blood, you'd have no forgiveness, you'd have no hope, and you'd be without God, strangers and aliens in this world. And then in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, I like this scripture. And they sang a new song, saying... Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. They're talking about Jesus. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Oh, do you see that? By your blood you ransomed people from all over the world. Ah. Oh. In spite of what we know to be true, See, our mind kind of has its own playground, and your heart has another one. In spite of what we know to be true, the daunting Goliath that believers grapple with is fear. Fear of failure. Fear of rejection. Fear that begs the question, am I good enough? Fear of separation. Fear of judgment. And ultimately, fear of death. Believers are dealing with that kind of stuff. Don't! Perfect love puts it on a gurney and gives it a lethal injection. Perfect love. When his perfect love begins to work in your heart, understand there's nothing you can do that he would withhold that perfect love from you because it's not based upon your performance. It's based upon his position as son of God. It's based upon his shed blood on the cross. We learn a powerful lesson from the shepherd boy, David. David understood the 46th Psalm, the one that I read just a minute ago. That psalm was not even written by David. That psalm, 46th Psalm, was written by the sons of Korah. God is our safe place. He is our strength. He's an ever-present help in time of trouble. But I'll tell you the psalm David did write. He wrote Psalm 91, which is a mirror image of that one. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty, and I will save the Lord. He is my refuge, my fortress, my God. In him will I trust. Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. 
His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. And then he says, Thou shalt not be afraid for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Let that truth encourage your heart, massage your heart this morning. It's so true. We see this encounter with David and Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 4 through 11. A giant nearly 10 feet tall stepped out from the Philistine line into the open, Goliath from Gath. He had a bronze helmet on his head and was dressed in armor, 126 pounds of it. That is a man's man. I mean, my clothes don't weigh five pounds with my shoes. He's got 126 pounds on there and he's holding things too. This guy's a giant, man. He wore bronze shin guards and carried a bronze sword. His spear was like a fence rail. The spear tip alone weighed over 15 pounds. Can you imagine that? His shield bearer walked ahead of him. Goliath stood there and called out to the Israelite troops. Why bother using your whole army? Am I not Philistine enough for you? And you're all committed to Saul, aren't you? So pick your best fighter and pit him against me. If he gets the upper hand and kills me, the Philistines will all become your slaves. But if I get the upper hand and kill him, you'll all become our slaves and serve us. I challenge the troops of Israel this day. Give me a man. Let us fight it out together. And it says, when Saul and his troops heard the Philistines' challenge, heard Goliath's challenge, look at those words, they were terrified and lost all hope. I'm going to tell you something. How did they lose hope? It's because they took the God of their army and they made him peripheral. If you don't keep him in front of you, I'm telling you, you have nothing to fight your battles. They put him on the sidelines, said, you're not playing today. That's the only thing that makes sense. You keep him front and center. You're encouraged. You can do anything in the world. The enemy's tactic is deception and fear, but they didn't work on David. What was David's response regarding the enemy's threats from the giant called Goliath? We'll pick up the rest of this story. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 32 through 47. Listen what David did. David said to King Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant, will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. A lot of people think that David killed the lion and the bear with the slingshot. Friends, did you see what he said? I grabbed it by the hair. You can't use a slingshot that close. I grabbed it by the hair, and I struck it. I gave it a death blow. There has to be something supernatural going on, man. A man can't punch a lion hard enough to kill it. A man can't punch a bear hard enough to kill it. There's something supernatural. David knew who he was in God. He said, I struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. 
And he says, this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. He says, the Lord who rescued me, or another way to say it is the Lord who ransomed me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will rescue me or will ransom me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go. It's been nice knowing you. (laughs) No, he didn't say that. I'm sorry. That was just my sarcasm. He said, go and the Lord be with you. But he literally had no confidence that David would be returning. He had no confidence in that. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. And then David said, I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. I'm telling you, you and I are not made to wear fear. Take it off. Take it off. How do you take it off? By putting on perfect love. The revelation of his perfect love for you takes off fear. And David said, listen, this might work for you, Saul, but this ain't going to work for me. It was prophesied over me many years ago. I'm back in the late 1990s. A man picked me out of a crowd one day and he said, he began to prophesy. And one of the things he said, he says, you cannot wear the Saul armor. I didn't have any idea what he meant by that at the time. I was brand new in Jesus. Cannot wear the Saul armor. And I found out years later, my ministry would be different than a lot of people's ministry. And and I wasn't going to wear Saul's armor. I wasn't going to wear that old time religion. I was going to wear Christ and all of his glory and all of his goodness and all of his power and all of his love and all of his grace. David took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. Oh, man. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. Did you see that right there? He looked him over and he thought, man, you're just a handsome little guy. You know what came to me in the early morning hours this morning? I haven't seen the movie, but there's this movie out called Bumblebee. Bumblebee. And it's an old Volkswagen Beetle. We always look at Volkswagen Beetles and think, man, they're they're just cute little cars. I mean, who wouldn't want a little Volkswagen Beetle, a little yellow Volkswagen Beetle? And that's the way Goliath saw David. You're just a cute little Volkswagen Beetle. But if you watch that movie, that Volkswagen Beetle changes. He transforms into this giant transformer, this thing that's powerful and can fight, and he has all these electronics on him. He couldn't see that in David. He saw him as just some little cute boy, some little red-headed, snot-nosed kid. No, inside of David was the power of God, and David knew it. And David was being transformed from the inside out. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, listen to these words, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. You've reached deep into your toolbox and this is the best you could come up with? Are you kidding me? But I come against you in the name of Oh, see, he said, I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. David reached down, he pulled out the greatest weapon he had right there, and it was the name 
of the Lord. Friends, I don't want to ever discount the name of Jesus. I love that name above every name. I love that name Jesus. I don't think my wife would have a hard time with me saying I love the name Jesus, but I do Valerie. She's right there behind it, but uh, come on, man. I love that name. That name has done so much for me, but I'm telling you what, many people know his name. They don't use it right, but I'm telling you there's something that does not compare to the blood. The Bible says we've been ransomed by his son's blood. We've been saved by that name, ransomed by his blood. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Don't you love this confidence? Friends, you need confidence like that. You and I, we can't go through life without this kind of confidence. He said, this very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. The way we would say it as new creations, the whole world will know there's a God inside of me. He lives in me. He lives in you. He said, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. In winding down, I want to make a couple of points. David made mention in this narrative, this whole narrative, that he had been rescued, he had been ransomed. He said that on several occasions. What does it mean to be ransomed? What does it mean? I looked in Merriam-Webster's dictionary and I found these words. It means to be free from captivity or punishment by paying a price. Please make a note what it's saying, by paying a price. And the Holy Spirit said to me, would you like to see what that says in Noah Webster's dictionary from the 1828? See, Noah Webster was a believer. Oh, you read his dictionary, man, he's got scripture everywhere in that dictionary all over the place. He makes his points with scriptures all over the place. I think he wrote it more accurately because this is what he wrote. Redeemed or rescued from captivity, bondage or punishment by the payment of an equivalent. See, that's better than just a price. This is equivalent. In other words, he was saying you were so extreme. You were so extremely lost. It took an extreme God. It took an extreme being to snuff sin out of your life. Payment of equivalent. The next time you're wondering if daddy really does love you, if Jesus really does love you, I want to draw your hearts back to the cross. I want to draw your hearts back to what he's done for you. And it's clear to see that magnitude of the gift that he gave us, that great price that he paid. Listen, man, ain't nobody in here to go out and buy a loaf of bread for $300,000, would you? No, you wouldn't do that because you go, that ain't worth that. Well, we were like that loaf of bread and it was just overpayment. In a sense, as we see it, But daddy says it was equivalent because see, that's my son and you're my son. You're just kind of a wayward son. I have a way of bringing you back to the shed blood of the lamb and we'll do that one day and we'll make all things beautiful all over again. Some of my closing scriptures. Ephesians chapter one, verses seven and eight and verses 13 and 14. The Bible says we have been ransomed by his son's blood. There it is. That was the inspiration for the message. That's where the Holy Spirit drew my heart to, right there. We have been ransomed by his son's blood and we have forgiveness for our failures based on his overflowing grace that he lavished on us. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, okay? When you believed, 
you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit. I love that. Who's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You can see what we were ransomed by, who we were ransomed by. You can see what the payment was. And you can see that he thought so much about this. He says, listen, I'm going to make sure none of you can ever say you can ever get away from me. I'm going to put a deposit down on you. And listen, anything I know about deposits, when you put down deposits, you come back and get the stuff at some point in time, don't you? Yeah, you put deposits down. You don't want to give away a deposit. He's not wasting that precious blood. He's coming back for what he put the deposit on. And then we see this truth in Romans chapter 8 and verse 15. It says, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. You see, he had just been talking about a deposit called the Holy Spirit. That's what he gave us, the deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. And he says, I want you to know something about this. He says, that deposit I put on the inside of you, we call him the Holy Spirit. He does not make you a slave again. A slave to what? To fear. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. Or as they say in Haiti, que papa a, heart of the Father. You see, that's what that scripture is about. That scripture is about drawing our attention to the heart of the Father. Why? Abba, Abba. I mean, a baby could say that. Ba, 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 ba. They'd probably say ba, ba, but it's Abba. God just takes ba, ba and goes, that, that, that's close enough. That's what he does. Abba, it means papa. It means daddy. Quit just seeing him as God. In the old covenant, they saw him as God. He was still powerful as God, but he's more than that today. He's our papa. And Jesus said, hey, listen, you can call him Abba, Papa. Father, he's up close, he's personal. My final scripture, Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, and Jesus said these words. He said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's okay. Let the stillness of that message rest in your heart. Friends, the wonderful truths that we take home today from the message are these. We who were at one time far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Sin made us ugly, but Jesus and his blood made us beautiful. We have been ransomed from sin ransom from fear and it came through another man his name is Jesus our response is we are forever grateful for our Jesus the one that was so disfigured so that we could receive a new identity in Christ our declaration cries out God is my safe place God is my strength God is my ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, I will not fear. I am upheld by the King of Kings grace. Selah. Selah. 
Friends, David was rescued from the bear. And David was ransomed from the lion. And David was ransomed from Goliath. How was he ransomed? By the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. Likewise, we have been ransomed out of sin, ransomed out of adrenal fatigue, ransomed from the dominion of darkness, ransomed from a marginalized gospel, and ransomed from fear. We are fearless in his presence. So now the question, how are we ransomed? Friends, it's very clear. We are ransomed by his son's blood. Daddy, (laughs) I can't even begin to tell you how merry my heart is right now, how happy my heart is. Daddy, is that truth has checked in to our hearts. And as that truth refuses to leave, but it makes other things leave. Oh, it makes the fear leave. It makes those frustrations leave. It makes those wrong ideologies leave. We thank you, Father, that all we are left with is perfect love. Perfect love from our Father. I thank you, Father, that we've been ransomed from the dominion of darkness. We no longer live there. It's not our home. Jesus is our home. I thank you, Father, that Jesus has made us beautiful by his blood. In Jesus' name, amen.